Welcome to the Boys in Blue podcast, the podcast that's all about cops. I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. You have tuned in, undoubtedly, to the most informational law enforcement podcast out there today because we'll talk to real cops, some active, some retired, and we'll get the inside story on law enforcement. So normally I host the Boys in Blue podcast from behind the stainless steel titanium microphone in the Boys in Blue studio, but today... We are inside the Mesa Police Department, seated in the office of our special guest today, Lieutenant Brian Solar with the Mesa Police Department. So welcome, Lieutenant Brian Solar. Well, thank you, Bill. How are you doing today? Doing wonderful. So good to have you invite me to your office so we could interview you and do this podcast. And uh, right out of the gate, I want to, you know, I've been knowing you for probably, what, 15 years Oh, at least. At least, uh, my wife uh, worked for you as a civilian employee with Mesa Police Department. Yes, she did. Now, how did you get, she was a dispatcher all those years. Now, how did you corral her out of there? Well, I got put in charge of uh, wellness when I was a sergeant, and I was asked to start a family appreciation day. And that's where I uh, really Got to know Barb because I reached out to her because she was a real go-getter. And we started uh, going out and hitting all the businesses to put on this big family appreciation day for all the police officers in our department. And the first one I was in charge of, and it went really well, but Barb was the driving force in it. And then eventually, the next year, Barb took over, and I took the supporting role. And from there, it grew to being a huge event. So that's how I really got to know Barb. Super. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's been a pleasure to know you all these years, and I've always appreciated uh, I knew you from Barb, of course, and then we got, we were involved in the Honor Guard, and we went to Washington, D.C. on Police Memorial Week a couple times, and you, uh, I always wonder, I always remember how you kind of took us people who had never been there before, because you'd been there so many times, you gave us a tour of D.C. and all the sites there, so thanks for that, Brian. You've always been a good friend and I've appreciated that. So let me ask you right now, you're a lieutenant with the Mesa Police Department and how long have you been with Mesa PD now? Uh, January 19th, 2020, I will complete 25 years with Mesa and 30 years in law enforcement. Okay, so now 25 years here and five years somewhere. Where did you grow up at? I grew up uh, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And my first job was a small town called Zillianople, and uh, it was a little borough 20 miles north of Pittsburgh. Wow. And so how many officers were on that? We had a chief, and we had six officers. <laughs> and I was number six. <laughs> Good stepping stone there. Huh? So now let me ask you this. How did you get attracted to law enforcement? I was working in a mill right out of high school. I got hired by a mill called L.G. Smith's, and uh, I put in 10 years there, but but year nine, uh, the writing was on the wall. They were going to close the mill. They were going to shut it down, and I was uh, taking martial arts, and the guy I took martial arts with was a police officer, so I was helping him. I ended up training police officers before I even became a police officer. I was training police officers defensive tactics. Uh, in weapons retention, 
with him. And after that, I started to realize I needed to find another career. So he talked me into going to the police academy in back east. You paid to go to the academy yourself. I went every Wednesday night and every Saturday, all day Saturday for a year. And then I graduated. And uh, when I graduated, the first place that was testing was a place called Zillian Opal, a little small borough. I knew it because we used to vacation up there in the summertime. And I went up and applied, and I took the test, and uh, lo and behold, they hired me. <laughs> so, you know, here's the deal now. You were taking martial arts. Now, am I understand that you actually had your own dojo at one time? I did. I ended up becoming a fifth-degree black belt in Ed Parker's Kempo Karate. And I also uh, did uh, Grandmaster Trias, who was a Phoenix detective out here. I also got a black belt in his karate system. Wow. So how long since you practiced martial arts? I practiced martial arts from about uh, 17 till today. You're still doing it? I do a little bit of it. You know, I try to do the stretching exercises and stuff. I'm getting older, you know. I'm uh, 60 now. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's amazing now. So they inspired you to apply, and you saw the right on the wall for the mill and ended up uh, in that small town. Now, five years there, what spurred you to end up in Mesa from there? Well, you know, it was a great little town. I really liked it. I learned a lot about community policing there because we had a main street. It was about a mile and a half long. You had to walk it twice a, twice a day on day shift if you didn't have any calls. Your job was to go in every store, meet everybody, say hi, uh, once on swing shift. But I was never going to really be able to move up. I, at the time, there was no internet, no computer, stuff like that. And I wanted to get an education. And we worked a week of days, a week of swings, and a week of midnights. And your days off always changed. So there was no way to get a set schedule to go to school. And that was a big thing I wanted to do is get my education. So my brother Craig, who once he got out of the Army, went to ASU and stayed, and he still does live in Tempe, called me and told me that Mesa was hiring. So I decided to catch a plane and fly out and stay with him, and I tested for Mesa. And, and then I uh, come back out again and tested for Phoenix. And lo and behold, Mesa called me first and offered me the job, and I took it. And then a week later, Phoenix called me, and I had already taken a job with Mesa. So that's how I ended up out here. I took the job with Mesa and came out here. Uh, yeah, I came out on uh, like the 3rd of January, 1995, and went to the academy January 19th. January 19th, wow. Okay, so quite a difference between Mesa and that small town in Pittsburgh. Huh? Yeah, I went from a six-man department with three cars to Mesa, which at the time, in our heyday, they were. I was part of the add-on, so by the time we were done we had about 900 officers at the time on the street. So that's a big jump. How many now? How many now? Brian? We're at about 7.30. You have less officers now than you did when you started? Yeah, when the recession hit, Mesa went into a hiring freeze, and we didn't hire anybody for five years. And we, through attrition, we lost a lot of people. Now we're struggling because we want to get our numbers back up there, but... The hard part is everybody in the country is hiring, trying to hire police officers, and because of what's going on politically in the country, uh, with the demonization of law enforcement by the media, 
it's really tough to get quality candidates that actually want to get into this field while the economy is doing so well. Well, you know what? That's one of the reasons for this very podcast, you know, is to counter that distorted narrative of police officers, you know, uh, such a bad rap they've got, especially from the previous administration. Uh, I think we're getting back on track, though, you know, people. And one of the things that I know, and you probably, I don't know if you do or not, because a lot of policemen don't realize this. They get so much backlash from media nowadays. But the the general population, probably 99% of the general population, appreciates police officers. And they look up to them and they respect them for what they do. In fact, let me ask you this. This is a good question that I get all the time. What is it uh, about uh, law enforcement that would attract anybody? You know, the reason I got into it, the reason most of the people I know got into law enforcement was you kind of want to make a difference in your community. You kind of want to help people out. Uh, when you first get into law enforcement, you know, you see a lot of stuff on TV and you watch these TV shows, but they're not realistic. There's very few that actually show what police really do. And uh, our job is to go out there and make a difference in our community and help people in need. And that's why I got into it. And that's why I still enjoy the job. I enjoy it as much today as I did when I put the badge on the first time. You know, uh, your background mirrors mine a lot. I started in a small town, five five policemen, the chief, a sergeant, <laughs> three ground powders, and I was number five. <laughs> and it was the same gig, you know, okay, day shifts, swing, and graveyard. And then you just went, oh, my gosh, you never slept, you know, that sort of thing. And I ended up uh, going to a larger department, just like you did. But, you know, and I think when you're young and just starting out, uh, now, you were a little older, weren't you, when you first got in law enforcement? Yeah, I was 30 when I got in the law wow, enforcement. Wow, that makes a difference. That yeah, a difference. I had a little, a lot more life experience, Sure. you sure. know, and I, I had to work for the, the mill, so I had a good work ethic. So that, that played a lot. You know, we're seeing a lot of uh, issues with the younger kids coming out. They have very little life experience. Uh, very little work experience and they're coming out and they're getting into this career and you know it's a trying career because you see a lot of really you see the worst side of society most of the time in police work um one of the things that really rejuvenated me was i went back to baton rouge when the uh, the black lives matter was a big deal and everybody was criticizing the cops and uh there's a war on police as you know and that was back uh, a few years ago when uh, Dallas had its mass shooting, and then following that up was Baton Rouge. And I was, I'm the honor guard commander for our department, and they flew me to both of those places to, you know, honor those fallen officers from those states. But we went into Baton Rouge, and it was, uh, I was staying in a predominantly uh, uh, African American neighborhood, you know, and I'm a white police officer. And it was really rejuvenating to me because everywhere we went, those people were so nice, nice to us. They, they were hugging us, and telling us that this doesn't represent, represent our, our community and we love our police. And just like you said, 90, at least 95% of the community love us. You're going to have the few percent that totally hate us and the other ones that just don't respect us. But 95% of the community love us and respect us. 
And that really drove home to me how important it is to be a community-oriented officer because the community is part of our team. We're a team. It's not police and community. Community is our eyes and ears, and we need them. That's how we solve crimes. It's not like TV where we make these great arrests. We usually get information from the community, and we're able to follow up on that and try to help get rid of criminal, criminals and criminal activity in the neighborhoods. Well, you know what? That's that's valuable information for lots of people, especially officers. Now, now I'm sure I was only 21 when I started. What attracted me was the uh, lights and siren, the adrenaline. You know, of course, that does to a certain extent. But it wasn't until I'd been on like four or five years where I really started to think, man, I, I need to make a difference here. I mean, there's victims that need protected. Uh, justice to be done, and getting someone off the street wasn't just a, a notch in my uh, belt for an arrest, but it was, you know, protecting society, and you think, well, in fact, that's one of the ways I always uh, all evaluated another officer. Would I want them to respond to my family if they needed help? <laughs> no, that's absolutely the way you look at it. I mean, like I said, I would really start to get down and out on um, law enforcement when the Black Lives Matter started and the anti-police rhetoric and all of a sudden we're having officers being assassinated in their cars and, you know, getting set up uh, to be hurt and injured. But like I said, when I went back to Baton Rouge and met with those community members, it really brought home that, yeah, it is a higher calling. The community needs us. They want us. And we have to be there for them because without us, there's total anarchy. And that's what some of these people want. They don't want law enforcement because they want to be able to do what they want to do when they want to do it and not be held accountable for any of their actions. And that's where law enforcement steps in. And that's why I do what I do. Help the community members. You know, and that small percentage that has that mindset. They'll be the first one to call 911 when they need help. Absolutely. They'll be the first ones to call and say, why didn't you get here faster? You know? By the way, by the way, uh, Barb and I lived in Baton Rouge for two years. And there is, coming from Washington State to move to Baton Rouge, there is such a thing as Southern hospitality. It is a different mindset down there. Yeah. I'll tell you, they, they took care, care of us. us. I mean, we would go to pay our restaurant bill because I had six members of my with me. And they're like, you're Bill Teddy. We're like, you like, mean our Bill Teddy. Yeah. They, they never had, they never, they come up and hug us and tell us, but they never wanted anything from us. And we were like, we're from out of state. You know, you don't have to do this. They were like, no, we love a lot and we don't care where it's from. So it was very. It rejuvenated me and made me understand because you can get jaded watching the news. Everybody, you know, you think everybody hates you. And until you really get out of the community and find out differently, you know, the news is our worst enemy because it's only puts out either fake news stories or just a bad news stories. You know, and one bad cop it can really taint all police officers across the country. And it's unfortunate, but you know, it's a big industry. We have 600,000 police. You're going to have a few make bad decisions. You know, we do a pretty good job of weeding them out whenever we find them. Uh, but you don't hear that on the news. You may make it sound like every cop's a bad cop. That's not true. 99.99% of the police are out there to do the job that they're being hired to do, and that's protecting the service of the community. 
protected service. It's good way to look at it. So now, Brian, so you came out here because you needed an opportunity uh, to go to school. Yeah, yeah to grow. grow. I, I wanted to grow educationally, and I wanted a place that I could move around, do different things, and promote Sure, different opportunities. So how far did you take the education? I'm assuming you went to school after you became an officer. Yeah, when I, when I graduated the academy, I went back to school on my own time because you had to be with Mesa uh, a year before they would start paying for your education. So I could clean up all the little courses I had to take, you know, because I was out of high school for 10 years. So I went back and got, a, got my associates, and then I went and got my master's at ASU in business and management, and then I went and got educational leadership from uh, Northern Arizona University. So I have a master's in that. So, wow. Wow. Yeah, I got a master's. You know what? That's incentive, buddy. That's what I always appreciate about you. You're looking forward. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I talked to policemen that they, uh, they never went to school at all. I mean, there, there's a place for everybody. And, you know, uh, yeah. some of the officers just like it in patrol. And, man, that's their gig. And they're there forever. And yeah. But I appreciate how you've moved up in the ranks and that. And without some... Uh, some uh, difficulty along the way, only because you were involved in, weren't you involved in the FOP? And yeah, I was the state president of the Fraternal Order of Police for Arizona, and I was the local lodge president for Mesa Lodge 9. I did that for almost 20 years. So, yeah, I was the union guy, as, as the city sometimes used to call me. But, uh, yeah, that, uh, that, that, that was a different turn. It was something I wasn't planning on. I just kind of ended up doing uh -huh. it. So, but in that, you know, unfortunate part of that is it's needed. But at the same time, there in there's an unspoken kind of little friction between administration and the union. Of course, you know there there can be. I really bent over backwards to try to work with all the chiefs. I had a very good working relationship with all the chiefs that I served for. Uh, you know, it, it's a thing where you got to give and take. And you go up there, and they're looking at one thing, and you're looking at another, and you try to work it out to where you can both live with the results. You might not get everything you want. They might not get everything they want. But I always had a good working relationship with all the chiefs, and uh, I, I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it a lot because I was able to make a lot of positive influence in our department. And for the employees of our sure, department. Sure, Well, tell me, uh, that brings up an interesting question. Okay, you've been here 25 years. How many chiefs have you worked on? I have completed seven. I'm starting eight. Uh, 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 That's uh, not uh, counting interns. Uh, you know, you know, saying just wait them out, you know, if you don't get along with them. But apparently you had a good relationship with all of them. So now, uh, you've moved up to lieutenant now. So how long were you in patrol? And then I'm assuming you went to sergeant from there. I was in patrol probably seven years. And then I made sergeant. And I went went I went from patrol to detectives. I'm sorry, I went from patrol to detectives. I was a repeat offender detective. Then I went to sergeant at about seven years. I spent... Four years as a sergeant, and then I promoted up to lieutenant. Lieutenant. So at what point along that route did you get your master's degree? I was a sergeant when I got my master's okay. degree. Okay. Do you think you'd be a lieutenant today if you hadn't 
put that effort in to get your education? No. In Mesa, you only have to have uh, basically a bachelor's degree to be a lieutenant or a chief. But uh, I wanted to continue on and get my master's. It was a personal goal, so I did that. And, you know, that helped me out a lot along the way. You learn how to do research. You learn how to write papers. It really helps you out. Yeah, I'm assuming it would, yeah. Well, okay, now, so currently, um, I was flabbergasted to hear all the things you're in charge of. So tell, tell me, when do you sleep, first of all, and then tell me about what you're assigned to now. What, who's under your control as a lieutenant? Uh, I have a very big area of control nowadays. I'm the operation lieutenant for the Superstition District in Mesa, which basically is 77 square miles. So I have all operational uh, control over the Superstition District, which is our largest district in the city. I also have criminal investigations. I have our street crimes unit, which is our undercover unit. I have Phoenix Mesa Gateway Airport. I have all law enforcement operations out of that airport, which is a substantial airport. It's growing into being one of the biggest parcel post hubs probably in the country with Skybridge and Amazon building down there to ship stuff out of there. Wow. So also, you, I'm assuming you probably have 100 offices? Probably about 135 <laughs> plus civilians. So I'm assuming you must surround yourself with good sergeants. Yes, that's extremely <laughs> important. Of all positions, there's two that really are major components of a police department. One is the field training officer. That's the number one most important because... That's the person that sets the work ethic for the new officer coming on. Yeah. They set the work ethic. They teach them the right way to do things. They teach them how to actually become a community policing officer, deal with, deal with the public, talk to the public. <clears throat> so that's very important to set the basics. And then sergeants are the second most important because they're the ones that are the driving force in how a police department runs. They're the ones that go out and work with eight to ten uh, officers and they set the, the tone and the pace for how they do their job. You know, and that, that is so important because they're usually the uh, ranking uh, officer on a scene, initially anyway. Now, one of my wife's biggest gripes about you, Lieutenant Brian, was that you're supposed to be somewhere safe <laughs> directing your sergeants and you would get out there and mix it up because you missed the street and you wanted to be <laughs> I'm, I'm not that guy. I'm, I can't sit behind a desk all day, and I just have always been the type of guy that when I'm out there and things happen, I'm right there. And it's like I'm first on scene because I'm right there, and it's just, yes, I end up getting in some situations, and I sit there and think, Wow. That's kind of hairy. Yeah, what happened here? Where's the sergeant? But, you know, I didn't give up being a police officer when I promoted up. I I truly believe you lead by example. And you got to be out there with your troops. you got to be out there willing to do what they're going to do. And that's always been my philosophy. And it's kept me grounded. Uh, I don't think I'm better than anybody else. As a lieutenant, uh, the only thing I have over the patrol officers, I have a bigger area of... Uh, things I have to look out for in yeah. the bigger picture. 
make sure everybody comes home safe, nobody gets sued, you know, looking yeah. to ensure that uh, we're doing the best job we can do. Yeah. And uh, that's where good sergeants come in because they handle the street and I'm their resource to get whatever they need. And then I take the bigger look when it's a, a major call to make sure that we're doing everything safely and that as safe as we can possibly make it. So I know you've been involved. I know there was an incident about a block from my house. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but uh, Lieutenant Solar was there. Uh, you guys have like a tank or something that breaks down walls of homes, or what happened there? That I, you had a yeah. barricade. I mean, it's a block from my house. I was glad you were there, Brian. <laughs> what yeah. We had a guy, he called threatening his wife. She had left him. <clears throat> he was really intoxicated and he was threatening to come over there, hurt her and her friend that took her in. And so we go, we went there, we we're doing what we call a welfare check. And I got there and, you know, I decided when I got there with the sergeant, I said, well, let's handle this as a barricaded subject. Basically, we're going to stand back. We're going to call him out. We had no crime. We were just going to bring him out, talk to him, make sure he was okay, you know, explain to him, you know, he can't threaten his wife. But we were really shorthanded as we were talking about. So we didn't have enough people, so the sergeant asked me to call him and talk to him. His name happened to be Dwayne. And I get him on the phone, and he's, you know, crying and sobbing. And I just told him, hey, no crime. We're here to just help you out. I uh, just need to talk to you. Can you come outside? And then he asked who called, and I said his wife. And then he went on a tarrant and started screaming he had enough guns and ammo to kill us all, and then he just started shooting. First few rounds went right over my head, which kind of oh, made me think. I hit the ground, pulled my pistol out, and looked at it and realized I didn't need a pistol because I had enough people with rifles. <laughs> so... Try calling. I just kept calling him. And every time I'd call him, he'd go through the, he would cry and say he was sorry. And then a few minutes later, he was going to kill everybody, hang up, start shooting again. So we got our SWAT team out there and we tried to negotiate. He'd only talk to me and he wouldn't listen. So we have what we call a, a bat. It's an armored vehicle and it has a ram on the front of it. And we they gave enough warnings. And then we started driving the truck through his house and Put a ton of tear gas in there and it never affected him and eventually he got down to where there's only one room standing and uh he came out just at the time as uh officer shot the one of the last gas rounds we had and it hit him and knocked him down and the dog went in and grabbed him and we were able to get him out without taking his life because i really wow. thought it was going to end with his life being taken but uh, he shot at least 100 rounds at us Jeez. uh into the neighborhood he didn't care about anything Oh, but, uh, yeah, he uh, went to prison and he's serving 28 years. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, uh, when you think about it, half the ending is best, best as it could be. I mean, he should have came out to begin with, but no officers were hurt. You know, no, he did shoot my car, though. Well, yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, that's amazing, you know, when you hear those calls and you think of how many uh, units were involved there. You got the SWAT team. And, of course, uh, my first love. Being a canine officer, the dog was what kind of... The dog is what got him out of the house. Yeah, The yeah. beanbag hit him, not the beanbag, the gas round hit him and knocked him down, and they let the dog go in. 
And the dog grabbed him and pulled him away from any other guns. And then oh, they were going to get him. So. Go, go Fido. You bet. Okay, so now, of all the calls you've been on, that's just one example of many. I'm sure you, you know, you probably forgotten more than you remember right now on some of those type of calls. What would be most challenging call that comes to your mind, Brian? Kids. Kids. Kids are in your arms, Bill. Yeah. It so gets me emotional today. I've had too many of them. So. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, something you can never shake. You bury it deep, and that's the thing with law enforcement. Some people can bury it and handle it, and then other people, they hit a point where we're all camels. You know, you put a straw on our back every call you go on, and eventually some people break, and they have to... They have to leave law enforcement because they mentally can't take it anymore. It is a very hard job. And, you know, uh, that's another reason. I'll go back to why this podcast even exists. Is It's so important to have the correct mindset on that sort of thing. You know, I mean, that stuff can build up on you if you have the wrong uh, perspective on things. Now, I'm looking at Lieutenant Brian Solid here, and one of the things that really – grabs him as far as calls he didn't when i asked you about the most challenging call it wasn't a shootout or nothing it was a little child who uh died in your arms but you provided arms for that little kid oh yeah you know that's how you gotta look at it yeah no matter what though and i've had four kids die in my arms children small children and uh you always second guess yourself even though you know deep down inside there's nothing you could do you did all you can do. Uh, just the sense of hopelessness, helplessness. Yeah, helplessness, yeah. You're there, and there's nothing you can do. There's nothing at all you can do. And and unfortunately, you know, that's just part of police work. So sometimes you're there You're there to make a difference and help and, and change the outcome of things, and sometimes you can't. And it's just total ho- hopelessness and helplessness. Sir. Yeah, and I think the image that we're supposed to be the answer to everything, too, is kind of a difficult thing. Hey, I got to take a phone call real quick. Hold on one second. Hey, John, how you doing? Anyway, one thing about being a lieutenant is even during the interview, you get interrupted. So we'll just pause here and let him handle this phone call real quick. Okay. So anyway... It's uh, kind of interesting to sit here in yeah, Brian's office. Yeah, I have to be in an interview right now. So Look at all the memorabilia hanging on the walls. I'm on the air right now, but I'll, I'll tell me if something But we're going to be back with Brian here. I hear him summon up this call. He's been with the Honor Guard for so long. Okay, so Brian. Sorry about that. It's okay. Uh, you only got a hundred. You only got one hundred thirty officers to you know, take care of there, so we'll give you a break on the intermission there. But anyway, so you get some memorable calls, and I think you have the right mindset about you know. Yeah, as long as you can look at it, you know that's the way I look at it. In retrospect, uh, you you do what you can, and uh, thank God you're there, even though you have these. It's difficult to deal with mentally sometimes. But here's the thing. I'm sitting here in your office. Now, you tell me as I look in your office and I see this coffin. How many lieutenants have a coffin in their office? Is this like preparation for something? or 
as I told you, I'm the commander of our honor guard. So we did an honor guard training and we have a, every officer's funeral in Arizona, our honor guard is represented there. Uh, we've had to bury a couple of our own, but it was never in the line of duty. When I was here, we had one in 94 right before I came that was line of duty. But officers that have gotten sick and, and died of cancer, or <clears throat> we had one that was on his way home from work. He got hit head on by a drunk, and we had to bury him. And we have to practice over a casket. So one of my friends, who's a retired Mesa police officer, works for a, mor a mortician, and he was able to get us a casket uh, for free and donated it to us. But I didn't have anywhere to store it, so I put it in my office for now until I can get a place to store it. So it's become a conversation piece. I would imagine. And uh, when your subordinates come in for an evaluation and they see the coffin, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's quite the conversation yeah. piece because I've got a side door that opens up into our lobby where we have a lot of people that use our community uh -huh, room. Uh -huh. And I'll open that up, they go out to the restroom, and uh -huh. there's a casket, and we'll uh -huh. see it. And we're like, there's a casket in there. That was the last guy who gave us a bad time. Yeah. So, well, okay, so Brian, here you are. You're approaching 30 years of law enforcement. And. As you look at young guys coming on, say they're a brand new officer, what words of wisdom or advice would you give them? The main thing is keep a level head. Don't get tied up in any of the politics going on in the department, in the city, in the country. Keep a level head and remember why you pinned that badge on. You pinned it on to make a difference. And you have to go out there every day with a clear head and do the best you can do to represent uh, our department and our citizens and help them in any way you can. And that's the main thing is just keep your head clear. You can't get all tied up in the things. And it's hard to do because we have lives. We're human. You know, we have people that have marital problems. We have people that have other problems. And you can't bring that to work. you got to be able to separate that. And you have to have a clear level head. And that's where sergeants play a key role because they need to know their people and if somebody's having issues, we need to be able to step in there and try to help them. We've got all kinds of resources in our department because it's a big department, uh, peer support that can reach out and help officers that are having some issues and help them deal with their problems. So, Well, you know what, Brian? That's, I'm so good to, glad to hear you say that because it's a leadership. I mean, you just set the tone for 130 people. <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> and that's true. important to look at, at the officers uh, holistically. You know, he's, uh, he's got emotions and and everything else involved in there. So you look at the whole guy. But would you tell him to continue education like you did? I believe in education. Uh, it's always a learning process. Even if you don't go to school, educate yourself. There are numerous classes you can take to make you a better police officer, a better detective. If you want to just go laterally in the department, or if you just want to stay in patrol, we have a lot of other trainings that can make you better at your job. So education is a lifelong commitment, whether you go to school to get it, or whether you go to training classes to get it. It's a lifelong thing that makes you better at your job, which makes you a better police officer all the way around. So now you did patrol, then you did detective. Then you're a sergeant, now you're a lieutenant. So 
over 30 years, I'm assuming that you probably won't put in more than maybe 10 more. <laughs> We're probably looking at like five. <laughs> so what is, what, is your, what is your goals or vision for the rest of your career? You know, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing right now because I do have a lot of stuff that I'm in charge of and it keeps me busy. And I'm a, not a sit-behind-a-desk kind of guy. I'm more of a get-out-there-and-do-the-job kind of guy. So I really love what I'm doing right now, but, you know, they can move me. Uh, as a lieutenant, we're at will. We can be moved where the department deems that we need to be. I mean, I was patrol most of my career, and then I got drug up to policy, planning, and inspections. And I thought it was going to be the kiss of death. You know, I was, it, just admin. It's all admin. I was going to just hate it. But I actually really learned and grew there. And it was one of the best experiences I had going up there because it, it showed me a different side of law enforcement that I wasn't used to. I was used to the action and being out there on the street. And all of a sudden, I'm in charge of policy planning, inspections. And I also had the evidence section that I got put in charge of because I'm kind of the fixing guy for the department. Yeah. For the area that needs some help, they send me in to get it straightened out. And was able to do that and get the right people put in there as supervisors. It's running great right now. So, so you're looking at maybe commander? I did test for commander. Don't know if I'll get it. If I get it, I'll probably do seven more years. If I don't, I'll probably do five more years. Ah, okay. Okay. So now... Now, how are you looking ahead? Are you planning ahead for retirement years? Yes. I have a little plan in place, and it's moving along quite nicely. Uh, so when I retire, I should be okay. You know, I'll, I'll be able to live comfortably. Uh -huh. I'm strapping a bit comfortably and be able to go do some traveling. I like the outdoors, so I plan on doing a lot of camping. So my I'm going to get an RV and do some traveling that way before I get too old. So you'll be 65. Yes. Okay. Minimum. Yeah. 65 67. to 67. 67. <laughs> yep. But you know, now some of these guys are just, you know, when they started when they're 21 or something, they, when they're like early fifties, they're pulling the pin and they haven't got a plan for, you know, you got to have a reason to get out of bed in the morning and feel significant. There's a reason I haven't retired, and it's because I'm afraid of being bored. I'm just not a guy that can sit there and watch TV or just sit around. So that's my biggest fear of yeah. retirement. But, yeah, you do. when you get into this field, you need to start planning ahead, and that's one of the things I try to do with all the new recruits. When you're young, you're single, we can put so much money away into a deferred uh, compensation plan out of your pay. And I tell these young people, do it early, put maximum amount of money in before you get married, before you have kids, you get used to living on what you're bringing yeah, home. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't see it, if it's taken out of your check before you yeah. see it, you can end up with pretty good money at the end of your career in a re for your retirement. And sure. that's what you need to plan on when you get into this job. Yeah. Uh, it's not a job, it's a career. There you and, go. Yeah. And the bottom line is plan ahead and Take care of yourself early on, and in the long run, it'll pay off. You know, and I would add to that that think of what activities you're going to be involved in. You know, you can't go from warp 10, like in charge of 130 people, like, okay, now what? Get the RV loaded up, I mean, you know. Yeah. So I know you've got that scored away, and I think that's one of the things that uh, challenges a lot of guys that are younger than you when they 
reach retirement? The biggest problem with law enforcement is it is a very addictive career. It's a lot of adrenaline. You're in the know. You get to talk to people. You get to go to things. In the day you retire, it ends. It ends. And it just it's night and day. Yeah. The day the day you walk out the door, your cards don't work no more. You're not informed. You you're just out there on your own. And if you don't have a plan, I've seen so many of our guys have to go and they go and get another job somewhere else because they didn't have a plan on what to do when they retired. And they realize all really quickly that, you know, I just can't sit around and do nothing all day because police works go, go, go. And to go from go, go, go to do nothing is hard to do. Yeah, you only go fishing so long before, yeah. Well, anyway, Brian, um, I know you're a busy guy, and I appreciate the time you've given us for the interview here. And, you know, uh, any final words you'd like to say about law enforcement, Matt, or... Well, I'd like to go back to what you said. I think we're seeing a turning of the times. We went through the hard times with the Ferguson effect and the anti-police rhetoric, and it's still out there. Uh, the discouraging thing is, you know, you're starting to see some of these uh, district attorneys become very liberal, and they're letting all these people out of prison that need to be in prison, and it's putting a burden on police because now we're redealing with them. The community's getting victimized by them again, and that's kind of discouraging to see, but I think you're starting to see a slow turn back to, hey, we really need to take care of our law enforcement officers because if we don't, we're going to pay a severe price uh, with anarchy and just crime going through the roof. Well, I think you're absolutely right, and if, as they go through this process of you know maybe letting people out early or whatever, Makes them all, all the more important to have good, solid guys like yourself, Lieutenant, <laughs> and uh, have role models in there for for these young guys coming up to get that work ethic, and, and they, they do make a difference. And one thing about law enforcement, you don't see it all the time. I mean, how many times, we don't even know, and just driving through a neighborhood, how many crimes did maybe you prevented by your presence, you know? Those are things you never know. That's uh, just like, you know... Uh, DUI arrests. Yeah. You know, you make a number of DUI arrests. How many people's lives did you save? Sure. Seriously injured sure. or killed? Yeah. You know, it's yeah, just absolutely. one of those things you never know. Yeah. But the thing about the, the going up in leadership with, with me was you make a difference in more people's lives, more employees' lives. And my job is to train the next person to take my spot. And my sergeant's jobs are, are to train the next person to take their job. And yeah. it's mentoring and training. Uh, the new recruits to be the new sergeants, lieutenants, commanders, and chiefs. That's right. And uh, That's right. it's all about education and getting them involved, and hopefully they'll take the next leap of faith and step up and get promoted. Okay, so here's the deal. I'm glad we have guys like you in charge, Lieutenant Solar. And here's the deal, the one other aspect on the lighter note. Uh, the 19th of this month, you will have... 30 years. The 19th of this month is also my birthday. <laughs> so the deal is we need to celebrate both events at once. Well, yeah. yeah. So I want to hold you to that. You've mentioned it before. Yeah, we, we can do that. We're going to put it together. And, of course, we won't have any say in it, but the wives will. <laughs> so we're going to celebrate my birthday and your 30 years in law enforcement. 
Well, listen, thank you so much, Brian. Appreciate you so much. We'll be in touch with you. All right. Thanks, Lou. Thanks, Have a great day. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Boys in Blue podcast. Again, I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. Boys in Blue comes out every other week. Subscribe to the Boys in Blue wherever you get your podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and let us know what you think. 